Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. In this slight detour for the show, I spoke with New York-based political commentator DeRoy Murdoch. We have an invigorating chat about gun crime and inflation, two topics that are galvanizing investors today. We later focus on the implications of these issues for the 2022 and 2024 elections. DeRoy is a Fox News contributor, a contributing editor with the National Review Online, and a senior fellow with the Atlas Network, which supports and connects some 475 free market policy groups in the United States. He's a frequent guest on CNBC, CNN, C-SPAN, and MSNBC. DeRoy, welcome aboard. Fraser, great to be with you. So we met at a friend's birthday dinner party and got to talking and I said, I've got to have this guy on my show. Lots of interesting things. And you've got an op-ed coming out shortly on the topic around crime and its impact both in New York City and nationally. Before we get to that, maybe take us through a little bit about your background and what you're up to right now. Going back to the beginning, I was born in Los Angeles, California. I spent the first 18 years of my life out there and got the big idea that I wanted to see how the other half lived, if you will. Moved back east, went to Georgetown for four years, went back to LA for a year, and then decided to see more of the east. I came to New York City to go to business school at NYU, where I got an MBA. And in my third semester of four at NYU, I had spent a semester at Chinese University of Hong Kong studying overseas. And that was back when Hong Kong was known as Hong Kong British Crown Colony. It was under the protection of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. So I actually lived under the protection of the British Royal Crown for a semester, which is wonderful. That's before the Red Army came in and wrecked the places they have lately. And my plan was to be in New York for just two years and get that out of my system, move back to California. That actually never happened. And now this is, I believe, beginning of year 35 in New York City, which nobody saw coming, but here we are. And I stay busy as a Fox News contributor. I'm a contributing editor with National Review Online. I work with think tanks around the world in the United States, an organization called the Atlas Network. And we support about 500 free market think tanks in U.S. and 95 countries. And I speak a lot through the Federal Society, through Young America's Foundation, and other groups that have me come on to campuses, law schools, civic organizations to talk about free markets, limited government, individual freedom, personal responsibility, and peace through strength, which are the five, if you will, big pillars upon which I do what I do. What a terrific and broad background. You talk about in an op-ed that's coming out shortly about the impact of crime and maybe the need for a new way to look at how we police and how we treat crime in society. New York City residents were on the cusp of watching a massive turnout from the police to honor their fallen after a very difficult double shooting. Take us through your op-ed a little bit and what you're seeing and what you think is interesting and important to talk about in the issue of crime these days. I think it's really top of mind for a lot of people these days, along with inflation. I think those seem to be the two biggest problems on people's minds these days. My headline is fight crime, arm the American people, and I'll get to the conclusion there in a bit. But I think what really is disturbing people more than the crime wave we saw back in the 1990s, 1970s, when a lot of crime was things like drive-by shootings, killings related to drug deals that went south, gang shootings of other gang members. So not always, but often if you stayed out of crime and you didn't deal drugs, you probably would be okay. Now we're seeing these incredibly, totally random killings of 
people who have absolutely no connection to the perpetrator. So we've seen people pushed onto the subways who are just minding their business. They're not getting into altercations with the bad guys. They're standing there waiting to go to work and somebody comes along into Times Square at 9.30 in the morning and shoves somebody onto the subway tracks and that person's run over and killed. We saw this poor young lady in Southern California working in a furniture store in Hollywood and somebody went in and stabbed her to death. She was a graduate student at UCLA. So you're seeing this total mayhem victimizing people who have absolutely nothing to do with the people who are coming after them. And I think that makes things a lot much scarier than if you are in organized crime and you think, okay, well, I've decided to have a life of crime. I know what the risks are. I might get killed. This is people just going about their business and they end up in caskets. So I think that's horrifying. Another aspect of this is that many of these instances, the perpetrators are homeless. I use the word homeless in quotes. And we really need to have a conversation in this country about the term homelessness. There certainly are some people who may not have paid their rent or fallen behind on their mortgage payments or whatever, and are sleeping under bridges or whatever. But homelessness is a euphemism. It really is a term we use to comfort ourselves, which is a lot easier to use and a lot easier to think about than what the problem really is, which is outdoor lunatics. We're dealing with people who are mentally ill, paranoid schizophrenics, people with severe drug addiction, chronic alcoholism, and that's the problem. And the unfortunate thing about using the term homelessness is we think, well, people lack housing, so let's create housing. So we run out and build a 10-story structure of affordable housing, and then we wonder, well, how come the streets are still filled with homeless people? Well, it's because it's not that they need housing. What they desperately need is to be put in mental hospitals, be given serious psychiatric care, very strong pharmaceuticals, and maybe then they can get their lives turned around. But sitting around thinking, well, if we could just lower the rents by 10%, we'll get rid of the homeless problem. That's nonsense. It'd be like if somebody came to me as if I were a doctor and this person had congestive heart failure, and I said, oh, don't worry, here's some skin cream for your eczema. And I'd feel good, and the person would feel good, and we all can walk away thinking that the skin cream will take care of the problem. Well, great. Problem is the person still has a heart that's slowly but surely dying. And unless we seriously address these outdoor mentally ill people, we're never going to correct the so-called homelessness problem. And the third conclusion I make in this op-ed is that we're now in a situation where the American justice system has collapsed. We have police who very much want to do their jobs, but they can't. Their hands are tied because of the demoralize the police, demonize the police movement, which the left perpetrated. A lot of cops are scared to do their jobs if they arrest people. That person could be the next Derek Chauvin, the next person being arrested, the next person being sued, fired, what have you. So they observe crime. They're now in the business of watching crime happen. I don't blame them. I think they're victims of this terrible left-wing campaign to vilify them. Then we have a bunch of prosecutors like here in New York City, Alvin Bragg. We have George Gascon in L.A. We've got Chesa Boudin in San Francisco. These are far left, I think, truly Marxist prosecutors who are funded by George Soros, the closest thing to real life, James Bond villains I've ever seen. And these people are busy saying, well, we're not going to enforce this crime. We won't enforce that crime. We're going to lower the sentences we seek for other crimes. Alvin Bragg here in New York said that he doesn't want to see anybody in his office sentenced for more than 20 years, including for murder. So you kill somebody, you get 20 years, you're probably out in 10 or 12. Maybe for some people, that's pretty good math. We've got certain judges who like that and are happy to throw the jail cells open. Others want to enforce the law, but their hands are tied because of things like so-called bail reform and all that. So we're in a situation where we basically have no justice system anymore. And I think the answer to this is the American people need to arm themselves. We need to make it as easy as possible for law-abiding people to get guns and ammo and protect themselves from these monsters. And I say that in two senses. One, that you can brandish your weapon, just walk out of the holster, very often scare them away. And if one of these guys comes after you with a rap sheet, doesn't mean well and wants to hurt you or kill you, take him out. Take your gun out, waste him, and we're done with it. And we don't have to worry about these people doing it over and over and over again, going to jail for a couple of days, getting back out, raping or killing somebody else, 
going to jail for a couple hours, getting back out and doing it again. At some point, if the American justice system is not going to take care of these people, the American people have to do it. And if that means that these evil criminal thugs need to be eliminated from society, I'm 100% for that. And the sooner we can do this, the better. Your op-ed's going to ruffle some feathers to be sure. And I'm sure one of the questions that I'm sure is going to come up is for people who are armed, do you see some sort of transition period where people become law-abiding but inexperienced around firearms to becoming thoughtful with firearms and not turning into vigilantes and having the pendulum sweep in the other direction where all of a sudden we have lawlessness on the other side? We've got people in states like Texas, Louisiana, Virginia, for that matter, Arizona and others, where they do have concealed carry and so on. And you very rarely hear about, almost never hear about people who've got concealed carry and legal gun permits thinking, oh, let's go out and waste some criminals today. If they're confronted and people are acting up and doing things they shouldn't, people have stepped in and saved themselves. There was a case, I think, in Texas where somebody walked into a church and was about to do one of these mass homicide situations. And one of the parishioners just got up one of the pews. He had really good aim. He shot the guy. The thing was done in 10 seconds. End of story. So instead of having an awful hostage situation like we had at that synagogue, I think it was just last weekend, a couple weekends ago, that didn't happen. You didn't have one of these situations where a bunch of people got gunned down and killed like we saw in Charleston, South Carolina. Dylan Roof, I think, was the gunman there. That was maybe eight, 10 years ago. That happened. Somebody just got in, took care of the situation. The perpetrators in a box and everyone got on with their lives. And that was the kind of swift citizen justice I think we need. I'd love for people to be able to wait 20 minutes for the cops to show up. A lot of people don't have 20 minutes for that to happen, especially now with so many police departments depleted, with so many cops having resigned, people are not getting on the force. Other places where, thanks to these absurd and ridiculous COVID-19 mandates, cops are getting fired because they've not been vaccinated, and so on and so on. So we've reached a point where we American people just need to take care of ourselves. Where does the role of broken windows and the concept of preemptive policing come in? And how do you think about that in terms of the counter argument on the front that, well, it creates a racial imbalance with regard to policing and arrests and data that seems to back that up? I go to my CVS and my Walgreens, et cetera, and I'm frustrated that I essentially have to have an escort to go and pick up a set of razors. And this is all by virtue of the fact that We've now got essentially a systemic shoplifting problem in New York City where the major drug purveyors and even supermarkets at this point just let shoplifting happen because of a real distortion that I think has happened in the system. And I'm angry at that because this is not how people should behave. And so broken windows, which seem to have a very positive impact on New York City's crime enforcement and statistics back in the 90s and into the 2000s, and then has had a bit of revisionist history saying that it's created a racially disparate impact. How do you think about that in terms of both your gun solution and in policing generally? I've had it. I've absolutely had it. Look, I live in New York City just below Union Square, and there's a Walgreens at the corner of 4th Avenue and 14th Street, and there's another one on 14th Street just a little bit west of there between 4th Avenue and Broadway. These two stores are right next to each other. The Walgreens is going to close in a couple of weeks. I don't know if that has to do with shoplifting or not, but maybe it's just because the two stores are owned by the same company. They're right next to each other. In any case, I was out just last night at the Duane Reed on 14th Street, and some guys walking out of the big trash bag. And there's a little scuffle that ensues, and it turns out that the guy had an entire trash bag full of diapers, pampers, huggies, and was going to steal them and go sell them, I suppose. And they were able to yank this trash bag out of his hands. He turned around and walked away and kind of laughed at them. They said apparently he's been there before. Some other guy came in a couple minutes later, and they scared him off because apparently he'd been shoplifting before. I was outside the Walgreens on the other corner, 
about a week ago. And just as I was about to walk in, one of the security guards was fighting with some other guy who had a bag full of merchandise and he was trying to run off with that. So this has become a real problem. I know that stores have been closing in San Francisco. I think something like a dozen or so Walgreens and other drugstores have closed because they've been ripped off. This shoots prices up. Stores close. People have less access to everything from groceries to deodorant to drugs. I mean, imagine you're somebody 75, 80, 90 years old. You need to go get your heart medication. And rather than walking around the corner, you now have to walk four, five, six, eight, ten blocks to go get your drugs. And that's not easy if you're moving around a walker or something like that. So what I would do is I would, you know, this this business that it's okay to shoplift as long as it's under a thousand dollars, this is garbage. Somebody tries to walk off with a box of eggs. Tell him to put it down. If he doesn't, the guards ought to have shotguns and say, look, you want a taste of this or not? And I think a little bit of that will tell people, okay, it's not fun anymore. Uh, new sheriffs in town, if you will. Time to behave ourselves. Uh, we have a totally permissive situation. New York and San Francisco, many other cities, certainly Chicago, where people just figure, hey, why bother paying for merchandise? Just get it for free. There are no consequences. And you live in a society without consequences. Pretty soon you're living and something that's no longer society. I see this on the subways. People are jumping the turnstiles like crazy. There's no penalty for that. I believe Alvin Bragg, our far left DA, has said that's not going to be enforced. So why bother spending the 275? Why not ride for free? So until we see enforcement on these things, this will all continue. As far as the racial disparity, I would say that very often these, are unfortunately, are people of color, minorities who do this. Some of them are white. Some of them are other racial categories. But if somebody thinks that too many people are being arrested for crimes Black, rather than yell at the cops, I'd say yell at the black people doing this and say, look, behave yourselves. This isn't good for you. It's not good for society. Frankly, it's not good for black people. If people see black folks and think we're all criminals when we're not all criminals, but enough of them are. So the people think all black people are criminals. I blame black criminals for making life miserable for law abiding black people. And the onus should be on black criminals to stop the crime, clean up their acts. If they can't do it, they ought to be wasted. Let's zoom out more nationally speaking in the national political spectrum. And you mentioned early on that inflation is on a lot of people's minds. And I'm in an industry where inflation is a major issue. It affects investments. It affects people's spending power. It reverberates across people's life, no matter what form it takes. How are you thinking about that and how the wheels of political power are being turned right now at the national level? I went through the inflation experience back in the 1970s when under Jimmy Carter, we had inflation, I believe was running around 11 or 12% interest rates around 19%. Imagine a 19% mortgage. Huh? No one who's alive below about age 40 even can hallucinate such a thing. Here we are again with inflation running, I believe year on year, December of 2020, December of 2021, at I believe the number is 6.8%, something like this. We're seeing producer prices running about 9%, I believe. There are a number of reasons for this. One is the massive spending that's been going on under Joe Biden and the Democrat House and Democrat Senate. These guys cannot stop spending money. They love spending money. They now want to spend even more money on COVID on top of the $1.9 trillion COVID relief package. They've not finished spending that money. They want to spend even more money. So these guys just want to spend, spend, spend. The more you spend, the more you weaken the dollar, which leads to inflation. Another aspect that's pushed up inflation is energy prices. One of the very first things that Biden did day one, within hours of entering the presidency, was to kill the Keystone Pipeline. They've been pressuring oil companies by reducing permits on federal land, permits for oil and gas production. They've been getting their left-wing activist friends to pressure banks not to lend to the oil industry. And as a consequence, we've gone in one year from energy independence and being a net exporter of oil and gas into a country that no longer is energy independent. And you've got Biden running around begging OPEC and begging 
Russia of all people, to amp up their fossil fuel production so we can have lower energy prices. I mean, this is ridiculous, absurd. It's bad for the economy, terrible for national security. And it's one of the things that's increasing inflation. So I think the way to fight inflation is you've got to stop the ridiculous spending and free the energy industry so that it can go back to producing low energy petroleum and gas, natural gas, that'll bring prices down. And we need to do something about the supply chain fiasco. I believe we're now up to 130 freighters floating off the coast of Long Beach and Los Angeles. That also contributes to inflation. That needs to be cleared up. And then this labor, ironically, very low unemployment while also having a labor shortage because so many people are paid not to work. They stay home and watch Netflix rather than go to work. Those benefits really need to be carved way, way, way back. If you're disabled and you're unable to work, that's one thing. If you just want to stay home, catch up on The Crown or whatever's on Amazon Prime, great. Do that on your own dime, not on the dime of the American taxpayers. That'll get a lot more people working and a lot more businesses can operate. That'll boost productivity and that also will help bring inflation down. One little subset of what you're talking about as far as energy independence that drives me crazy really is the concept that even in the face of climate change and energy independence, low cost energy, we're shutting down nuclear capability, Los Angeles and New York in particular. And I think to myself, it's difficult to have a climate change discussion, in my opinion, and not be very pro-nuclear. And if you believe in energy independence, I think nuclear is another avenue that needs to be considered. And meanwhile, those cards are being taken off the table as far as an overall solution. Uh, does that fit into your worldview at all? Or is that something that's a little bit off? No, it fits very much into my worldview. I'm one of those people who believes in what they call the all of the above energy strategy, oil, gas, Nuclear, certainly hydroelectric. If solar and wind can be done in a way that is cost efficient and safe, I'm all for it. What I don't want to see is solar and wind being implemented with tremendous subsidies and taxpayer expenditures and also the destruction of bald eagles and hawks and other beautiful birds, which are just chopped to pieces by these giant industrial windmills. If somebody can make a windmill that doesn't kill the birds and can stand up on its own without taxpayer funding, then great. What's really absurd about what you described is the tendency in New York, I imagine in California, I believe the same problem in Germany, they're busy shutting down nuclear plants before they find anything to replace them. So God forbid, August of this year, if it's 95 degrees, everyone's got air conditioning running and all that, hot and humid, and all of a sudden the grid is desperate for more power and nuclear power plant that used to be up the Hudson River, Indian Point, I believe is what it was called, if I remember the name correctly. I believe that's offline and not replaced with anything. Maybe the magic wands will come out or maybe the leprechauns will come out and produce all the surge electricity we need at the time. I don't see anything like that. I know that there was an effort to bring in a natural gas line. Former Governor Cuomo didn't like that. It would have brought natural gas in from the Balkan shale out in Pennsylvania. He was opposed to this. He's against fracking in New York State, so we can't frack our own gas. Can't get a pipeline to bring in the natural gas from Pennsylvania. There was an idea of bringing in liquefied natural gas through a boat connection out in Long Island Sound. He nixed that. Then the next question was, well, can you bring in power lines from Canada? No, no, we don't want any power lines. So which is it? He's against any kind of alternative to Indian Point other than windmills, which don't really work so well in this environment. And then I suppose solar, which isn't such a great idea in a place like this where so far north that in wintertime you don't have that much light. We're not Arizona. We have a lot of cloudy, rainy days. And these solar panels are not installed anyway. So even if you like that idea, maybe the idea is put them in and then once you've got that alternative source of energy, then you shut down the nuclear plant. His idea is almost like the invasion of Afghanistan. You pull the soldiers out first and then figure out what to do with the civilians who are left behind. The Cuomo Democrat far left idea is get rid of the nuke plants once they're offline, then you figure out how to replace them, which is just completely backwards and cockeyed. But that's kind of the way the left thinks these days. 
Let's talk a little bit about the ramifications of these policies on the midterms and the national elections. What is the state of the union, as it were, nationally speaking? You've got a Biden administration that is under some duress with a variety of different problems, and you've got, looks like, some building momentum on the Republican side of things to take back parts of the House, if not both the Senate and the House itself. And then you've got 2024 looming. What are you looking at on the horizon on that front? Right now, Biden's at, according to the, I think, Quinnipiac poll, 33% job approval, 56% disapproval, I believe is the number. And he is way, way down with some core constituencies. He's only got job approval of, I believe it's 57% among blacks. Democrat presidents usually have approval of 80% and up. So even among black folks, he's nowhere as popular as it should be. If he and the Democrats want to do well this November, I think the approval number is 25% among Hispanics, 28% among independents. I mean, these are terrible, terrible, terrible numbers. If these numbers persist in November, the Democrats are just going to be wiped out and deservedly so. My concern is that I want to make sure that Republicans and conservatives don't take this for granted and assume this thing is in the bag. Nothing is in the bag until the last vote is counted. Number one. Number two, the right no longer can plan to win with 50% plus one votes. They need to win beyond the margin of vote fraud. And I have no doubt that this November, the Democrats will play all sorts of games with mass mail-in ballots, early voting, ballots showing up days and days or weeks after the polls close, no signature matching, all the shenanigans that they pulled back in 2020 in the name of COVID, which was the temporary excuse they had to implement all kinds of loosening of vote standards, which they've wanted to do for decades. If they do that, it's entirely possible that this big, massive win that you describe a lot of other people on the right predict doesn't come to pass. The other thing that's unusual aspect that could help Joe Biden is that the GOP has succeeded in preventing him from implementing Build Back Better and a lot of these other huge government programs, which involve a lot of tax increases. Right now, we're living under the Trump tax system, which has a 21% corporate tax rate. All those tax cuts that he delivered in 2017 are still around. And so if we are able to get COVID behind us, and it looks like it's finally tapering off, we may get that monkey off our backs at last. And then if the Trump tax cuts continue, there's no reason this economy can't continue to move forward. We saw the GDP number grow 6.9% as of late this week. And if you've got that happening, inflation can be tapered off a bit and COVID is behind us then all of a sudden the Democrats are not looking all that bad, not because of anything necessarily that they did, but in fact, frankly, because of bad things that they wanted to do that didn't happen. And if that's the case, this massive GOP blowout might not occur, might take place. But I think it's very important for no one on the right to assume that these things will happen. People need to be writing checks, knocking on doors, handing out bumper stickers, recruiting candidates, running for office, giving speeches, going on TV, writing letters to the editor. All the grassroots work needs to go on and it needs to continue these days, probably two or three days after the election, given that we may have people voting after election day. So don't take anything for granted. This thing looks great right now. If the election were tomorrow, I think it would be a sweep, but there's a long, long time between now and November and all kinds of different things can happen that nobody can predict today. So as we wind down here, last question, what do you feel good about in the next year or two? What are the sources of optimism? What are you looking at and saying, this is something I can look forward to, either politically or economically? I think there's a wonderful Russian proverb, which is, if I can get this right, it's that a pessimist is just a well-informed optimist. That's usually my perspective on things. But what do I feel good about? Well, I feel good about things like popular culture. I had the pleasure of seeing Elton John in New Orleans, beginning of his return to the road after 754 days off the road due to COVID and so forth. Elton John's farewell Yellow Brick Road tour is happening and goes on until sometime into 2023, I believe. So 
if you have the opportunity to see Sir Elton perform, he did a great show, and I love that. We've got Jazz Fest coming up, I hope, unless there's some complication thanks to the lockdown-itis of Mayor Cantrell down there. But assuming Jazz Fest happens, that'll be wonderful. And most of us still have our family, friends, and loved ones. We can still spend time with them, even as the political situation looks more and more ominous by the day. So all that's going on. And I think people believe in freedom, free markets, limited government. I think generally in a forward-stepping position, if you will, seem to feel like we have a lot to offer given what a mess things are today. And if people are inclined like that, I hope they will stay informed, active, engaged, and continue to fight for individual freedom, personal responsibility, limited government, free enterprise, and peace through strength. I'm going to have your op-ed in the show notes, and we'll connect to that. But how do people stay in touch with you? How do they follow you? How do they read your work? You can see a lot of my stuff at boxnews.com. Nash Review Online has an archive of articles going back to about the year 2000. My pieces also appear at Newsmax, Town Hall, American Spectator, and Spectator World, which is the U.S. version of the Spectator in London. Also, uh, Trump Train News and DeRoyMurdoch.com have pieces I write specifically for them. And I'm on Fox News Channel usually a couple times a week. And then on Bill Martinez's radio show every week, that's about 300 stations carry him. If you live in the St. Louis area, I'm on Annie Fry's show every Wednesday afternoon at about 1.05 Central Time. And then I appear on podcasts like yours and others. I guess the easiest thing to do if you want to find me is Google my name. You'll see all sorts of stuff going all the way back probably the last 20, 25 years. DeRoy, thank you for coming on. Interesting viewpoints and a lot to chew on. Very good, Fraser. Great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Wealth Actually.